This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Coming up next on Plains FM, the Shetland and Orkney Connection, brought to you by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society. Played by Shetland Band Homebrew, signal 8.30pm the last Monday each month for the Shetland and Orkney Connection, produced by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and broadcast on Plains FM 96.9, either directly in Canterbury or streaming live globally on broadband, or available for three months after the broadcast via podcast on the website www.plainsfm.org.nz. Welcome to the December edition of the Shetland and Orkney Connection. It is presented by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and is promoted by the community radio Plains FM 96.9. The programme is broadcast at 8.30pm on the last Monday of each month and is repeated on Monday two weeks later at noon. Oh, it's good to have you back on board again, Jane. Thank you. Almost 10,000 Shetlanders have received flu or coronavirus vaccine boosters since the program began in autumn, with 6,000 eligible patients still to be vaccinated. The vaccines do provide very good protection against severe illness and hospitalisation due to the flu and COVID infections. I must say, I haven't had any boosters, but perhaps you should, because the suggestion is it's going to be really bad here, isn't it? Well, I haven't either, but we do have our fifth wave has already started. Yes. Earlier this month, two men were rescued from their creel boat, hit by a submerged rock off Skerries and sank. A call to the Coast Guard was made around 6.30am. The crew had taken to a life raft as the boat quickly sank. A nearby salmon vessel recovered them from the life raft and took them on board. Sea conditions were flat calm, although the air temperature was close to freezing on one of the coldest nights of the winter. It was great that a nearby vessel was able to pick them up so quickly, and they were pleased to be landed on Walsay after their ordeal. They were lucky that that boat was nearby, actually. Mm. Mm. A wild swimming group who swam in in a different location every day in November will complete their charity marathon with an audacious attempt to fill Baines Beach in Shetland with swimmers. The six swimmers have so far raised over £15,000 for Cancer Research UK. Anita Georgeson took on the month-long marathon alongside Wendy Hattrick, Glynis Harkis, Linda Moncrief, Emma Williamson and Jean Murphy. She said they had been everywhere from Papa Stour to Walsay, from Barra to Unst, without swimming in the same place twice. It would have been too easy to do the whole thing at Baines Beach and at the Sands of Sound. I wanted to ratchet up the challenge and go to as many beaches as possible. 
Having set out with the goal of raising £6,000, they have now surpassed the £15,000 mark, something Miss Georgeson said was crazy. Mm, and it was in the wonderful. middle of winter, so you can imagine swimming in the sea. It would cold, it would have been. You'd probably go numb after a little bit. No, I mean, it would have been bad enough in the middle of summer, but in the middle of I couldn't believe it. Mm. <laughs> right, Yule traditions. After the Yule dinner, families, friends and neighbours would gather outside and play bar, a form of football, but seemingly without rules. Playing bar was a feature of Yule celebrations until the early 20th century in Shetland. Across Orkney, they also played a mass game of bar, and still do every Christmas Day and New Year's Day in Kirkwall. However, Strumness took things further. Christmas Eve was marked by a symbolic tug-of-war style game in which a tree, a rarity in Orkney, was stolen from a garden and bound and chained in the middle of the town's long street. The men from the north of the town then fought the south enders for the tree, each side attempting to drag it to a goal well within their own territory. This custom lasted until 1936. Mm, I think it's fun, more fun than the ball. They probably ran out of trees. (laughs) (laughs) I was just about to say you wouldn't be too happy if it was your tree. No, (laughs) no, no, that's true. Mm. Bessie Skier, one of Orkney's prominent people, was born in 1923 and died in 1996. Writing as the countrywoman for almost 40 years for local papers, Bessie vividly captured Orkney's natural world like no one before her. George Mackay Brown was a great admirer of her painterly prose, bringing Orkney to life. Bessie was born at Ostoff in Shappensee into a farming family. She married James Grieve in 1942 and they lived in Rousset and Bursay before settling in Harray. Published works, including anthologies of her columns, as well as short stories and poetry that captured many places across Orkney. A new collection, A Glisk of Sun, was released in 2023 to mark her centenary. Yeah, I used to enjoy her columns in the Orcadian. She always had something interesting to say and she'd just write about simple things, but it was still mm. interesting. And mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, like it said, what did George Mackay... Brown, Brown say, who painterly prose. Yes. So we, we obviously brought it Painting very much to life. Yes. Yes. Yeah, she did, yeah. Was, mm. And, yeah, yeah. I was sort of sad when it, uh, when it mm. stopped. Mm. Well, isn't we a bit of a change of pace here? Public oh. defecation <laughs> and urination is rife at the Ring of Brodgar, <laughs> and the shoreline of the Harry Lock is now an open-air toilet, oh, dear. according to tourism body Destination Orkney. Councillors on Orkney Island's Council Policy and Resources Committee recently voted against the siting of seasonal conveniences in favour of including the 5,000-year-old Neolithic site in a countrywide review of facilities. Destination Orkney said toilets at the Ring of Brodgar was an absolute necessity as things will only get worse with more visitors. Not only is it damaging to the local environment, but it also severely damages the reputation of Orkney as a safe and inclusive tourist destination, something that should be a priority to the Orkney Island Council. This is both a major environmental health issue and a letting down of every single visitor on the island due to the lack of basic facilities. Mm. That's appalling, isn't it? Yeah, Mm. but 
It sort of brought to mind um, I climbed Ben Nevis in Scotland, is it? Mm. And recently there's been a letter on Facebook or something about some chap had climbed it. And they were disgusted that there was no restaurant and no toilet facilities at the top. Oh, at the top. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> toilet bucket. facilities, yes, yes, but a restaurant? I said, you climb no. Mount Everest, there's no toilet facilities <laughs> or restaurant. But, yeah, no, I agree with them, the public um, toilets. Yes. Are a bit thin on the ground, actually, at tourist destinations. It could be like that in Shetland. I'm not just sure. But, mm. Mm. I don't know mm. what it was like there. But really, it's personal responsibility, isn't it? It mm. is, yeah. We yeah. do have a similar problem here around oh, yeah. a lot of mm. our tourist sites yeah. as well. Mm. Yeah. This next article was written by Linda Sutherland's mother, and it brings back great memories. Going to the dentist. Whether you wear dentures or have managed to hang on to your own teeth, having them attended to is becoming an expensive business these days. Reduced dental charges are not among the concessions offered to RAPs of today, except those on income support. Gone are the days when dentists came to the patient. In the early 30s when I was a child, we lived in Howick, Sandwick, where a dentist named Duthie visited two or three times a year. He consulted in a house occupied by Andrew and Adrena Malcolmson at the north end of the village. There wasn't much waiting as I remember it. We arrived on the dot and were seen at once. Having had dire warnings about being good and not making a fuss, we were and we didn't. <laughs> oh dear. Mr Duffy, a tall, bulky man with a large, pale face, was reassuring and efficient. As soon as the tooth was out... A shiny new penny was handed over by him to the small patient as a reward for cooperation. I think he charged one and six, seven and a half new pence for an extraction. There was a Mr Pearson and also a Mr Henderson, but my impression is that they were of an earlier date than Mr Duffy, who carried on his Lerwick practice from his home in Borough Road. What is now D&G, Leslie's delicatessen in Ellesmere House on the Esplanade, was George Scott's Chamber of Horrors. Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> Murder house, yeah. yes. To do him justice, he was a very good dentist, as was Mr Bruce Lawrenson, who practised above what is now Miller's Opticians. His topical chat and unhurried manner could either soothe or or irritate a tense patient. There could be a long wait for the next in turn. I remember a man suffering raging toothache who made a long and complicated journey to Lerwick for attention. He returned as he went with the tooth still in place, having been unable to face the moment of truth. Mm. Oh, that'd be awful. <laughs> I think you'd have to, wouldn't you? Yeah. So I was talking to um, Helen before we came here, um, and I was down at my sister's, and when I was going to bed, she said, have you got your false teeth? And I said, oh, yes, I was just going to clean them. And I picked the set of false top denture off the um, island and went to look at them, and I thought, but they're not my false teeth. And I said, are they George's? And she said, no. She said, I found them in the mouth of the Kakanui River, so someone had lost their false teeth. In them. <laughs> but I thought, she was hoping I'd try and get them in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a meanie. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to get my revenge. You mm. might have got them stuck and wedged in there, then you'd be in trouble. You're kicking any teeth. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're quite a different shape to my one, so yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> right. The Vikings, or Norsemen, 
were people who lived in Denmark, Norway and Sweden more than a thousand years ago. The rich men were called jarls and their slaves were thralls. There were also kings who ruled over large areas of land. However, most Vikings were farmers, fishermen or traders. Most Vikings lived in the countryside, but there were a few big towns. These were crowded and noisy, with animals everywhere. Vikings believed in many gods and goddesses who lived in a world above them called Asgard. They believed a rainbow rainbow bridge connected the two worlds. The king of their gods was Odin. Sometimes he was called Woden. Odin's son was Thor, the god of thunder, who carried a magic hammer. Two days of the week, Wednesday and Thursday, are named after Odin and Thor. Oh, yes, the magic hammer. Yes, you can see them here. Vikings were good sailors. They built boats called longships, which had a sail and a lot of oars. Sometimes these ships were called dragon ships because they often had a dragon's head carved at the front to scare their enemies. Viking raiders made many attacks on England, killing people and stealing things. In 865 AD, a great army of Vikings attacked. They conquered several English towns, but the English King Alfred the Great stopped them from conquering the whole of England. Over a hundred years later, the weak English King Ethelred tried to kill all the Vikings in England, but he only provoked other Vikings and was forced to run away. In his place, England had a Viking King Canute. Viking rule ended in 1066, when Canute's son, King Harold, lost his crown to the French invaders led by William the Conqueror. However, these invaders, the Normans, were actually descendants from Vikings themselves. Yes. Mm. Now, for some little beachcombing, written by John Dunn. In the early summer of 1914, Captain Hunter Brown of the Glasgow School of Navigation was a man with a mission. He took to the seas around Scotland with a cargo of almost 2,000 glass bottles, and by the time he returned to dry land, he had lost every single one, sunk without trace. This was no accident. Each bottle, a slim vessel of thick, aqueous green glass, contained a numbered postcard that promised the finder the princely sum of sixpence, if they returned it to the director of the Fishery Board for Scotland. Please state where and when this card was found, read the printed message within each bottle. You will be informed in reply where and when it was set adrift. Our object is to find out the direction of the deep currents in the North Sea. Each bottle was carefully weighted to ensure it sank and then bobbed along the seabed carried by the currents deep beneath the surface. The logic of the scheme was impeccable. The bottles, found by chance, would reveal something of the mechanics of the world hidden far beneath the shifting waves of the seas surrounding Scotland. Almost a hundred years later, Andrew Leeper, skipper of the Shetland fishing boat, Copius, spotted something unusual tangled amongst the nets, as they were being hauled aboard. Amongst the anticipated monkfish, cod and megrims was something rarer, and in its way more valuable still, one of Captain Brown's bottles. At the time, this was the oldest known message in a bottle ever found anywhere in the world, beating the the world record set, coincidentally, 
six years previously by another Shetland fisherman on board none other than the Copies. <laughs> Must be a lucky boat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Must be. Or it's in the same area. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly, yeah. Most of the 1,890 bottles released by Captain Brown remain unaccounted for to this day. Only a few hundred have ever been found. They remain one of the rarest finds in Shetland for the fortunate fisherman or blessed beachcomber, though perhaps not the ultimate prize in monetary terms. The sum of six old pence pales into insignificance with the value of the gold ducats and silver ducatoons that periodically wash ashore on the rocky beaches of the outskerries, tantalising fragments of the cargoes of doomed treasure-laden Dutch East India vessels Kenemerland and De Lefte, L-I-E-F-D-E. Yeah, a bit tricky, that one. Yeah. <laughs> that wrecked there in the 17th and 18th centuries. The Scaries had a particularly rich beachcombing heritage. For a 2014, Adam Adamson found a hard, rubbery block on a beach there. Similar blocks washed up on Atlantic beaches all around Northern Europe, though more commonly in southwest England. There are blocks of gutter percha latex produced on the rubber, plant, rubber plantations in Indonesia in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and are believed to come from a Japanese boat, the Miyazaki Maru, sunk by a German U-boat 150 miles west of the Isles of Scilly during the First World War. Those ocean currents that so intrigued Captain Brown can bring treasure to Shetland from further afield. It's quite amazing, isn't it, how mm. things float in the sea? Yeah. Technically, Shetland should be colder than it really is. Warm waters of the Gulf Stream warm our subarctic location at 60 degrees north. These, those warm transatlantic waters sometimes bring us a taste of the tropics. Fortunate beachcombers might stumble across a sea bean, a smooth, glossy, deep mahogany seed from a tropical flowering liana native to coastal Central and South America and the Caribbean, carried across the Atlantic to wash up on a Shetland beach. As a young boy growing up, wandering the beaches of West Cornwall, I know them as Caribbean beans but they're also known more romantically as sea hearts, named for the shape of the seed. I never found many in Cornwall, and here in Shetland they're more infrequently encountered still. I set my sights a little low when I'm walking on the local beaches at Tide Line. I look for mermaids' purses, the egg cases of sharks and rays, curious but alien forms that have floated ashore and for rolls of birch bark carried across the Atlantic to Shetland from the forests of the northern United States and Canada, known here as low-key candles. A nod to Shetland's Viking forebears, they were traditionally renowned for their fire-lighting qualities. They burned fierce and long, once dried, often giving a thick, black and sweetly scented smoke. And I can imagine that in a yes. house with a low roof. Be a bit mm. smitten, yeah. At low tide, some beaches are rich in shell debris, as colourful as the plumage of the tropical birds that live amongst the sea heart-bearing lianas of the tropics. Flat periwinkles come in a rainbow of colours, from pea green to sunflower yellow, and sometimes candy-striped with tangerine swirls. Painted top shells, frosted with silver nacre, 
are whirled with livid patterns of pink and purple, as intricate as a feral jumper. Looking at the inner shell of a blue-rayed limpet, when freshly emerged from the falling tide, is like gazing deep into a nebula of blue starburst and corona. Who needs the sea-tumbled coins from a Dutch shipwreck when one has treasure like this? I always keep a sharp eye open for cowries. These cheerful, subtle shells are a scarce prize on any British beach, one to be taken home and duly treasured. My Cornish grandmother firmly avowed that one should only ever give a cowrie away to one's true love. My best find, however, must remain a carved wooden duck that washed up on a beach below my croft many years ago. Once brightly painted, only traces of the finery remain and of the message that had been carried in a carved compartment in his base. There were only fragments of long dissolved paper. He was no reliable drift bottle, and there was no sixpence offered for his return, not that I would ever part with him. Some of the treasures that wash up on Shetland's beaches are simply one of a kind. <laughs> yeah, they are. Well, wash up on any beach is, mm. is one of a kind, yeah. isn't it? Mm. How fascinating, a painted duck. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I mean, oh, I suppose it could have come from England. Did they use them down there? For, yeah, they do use them down there for duck shooting, don't they? Sort of, I don't know, mm. but a message in his bottom? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's different. <laughs> uh, Orkney and Shetland folk, 872 to 1315 by A.W. Johnston, London, printed for the Viking Society for Northern Research, University of London, 1914. The object of this paper is to describe the mixed races which inhabited Orkney and Shetland from the foundation of the Norse earldom in 872 until the end of the rule of the Gaelic earls since 1350. Having briefly described the earliest inhabitants of whom we have any records, the Picts and the Irish Papas and the Columbrian missionaries and the settlers who must have come with them, Mr Johnston proceeds to deal with the Norse Earls, attention being called to personal appearances, character, habits, superstitions, etc. as indications of descent. Towards the conclusion of his interesting paper, the author remarks... Shetlanders pride themselves in, on their geographic detachment from Orkney with its Scottish people and customs, and claim to be regarded as purer Norsemen as compared with the Scots of Orkney. Perhaps it is owing to this qualified humdrum purity that the Shetlanders did not achieve any deeds of sufficient interest to be recorded in the saga. However, from an anthropological point of view, the Pictish and small dark strain is as much in evidence in Shetland as in Orkney, and perhaps more so. Yes, I had to put that bit in because I really like the little bit about the Shetlanders not doing anything worth mentioning. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Seeing I'm all, I'm all Cadian descent. Yeah, <laughs> but after all, the land makes the man. If it had not been for these northern islands, there would have been no Orkney Ingersaga with its verses and narratives of stirring events. Mr Johnson's essay bears evidence to much in patient research and is worthy of close study and has promised additional contribution on the inhabitants of Orkney and Shetland after 1350 
will, we are sure, be awaited with interest. I haven't come across that book as yet. Mm. Mm. Well, it's only a few days, days now until the end of 2023. I hope you all had a nice Christmas with your families, and we would like to wish you all the best for 2024. Cheerio until next year. Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy Hogmanay.